Thank you, Terry, and instrumentalist. If you'll uh, reach for your Bible and stand with me for our scripture reading this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 7. As Pastor Bruce continues looking at and preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be reading Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. If you don't have a pew, or if you don't have a Bible with you, we have one in the pew in front of you. It's on page 965. And uh, listen along as I read Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, as, as Pastor Bruce Uh, continues with uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. This is the text we're going to be looking at today. So listen as I read. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Father, we come to you this morning. Thank you for your word, the, just the truth that it is. And I pray as Pastor Bruce brings the message this morning that we would just, uh, just look in our hearts and, and, uh, and just evaluate where we are with you um, and just learn and have open hearts and minds for your, for your message this morning. I'll be with Pastor Bruce as he brings it. Thank you for his preparation. Thank you for his leadership. Help us to uh, be in your word. Help us to learn from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes Jesus is just plain scary. Now, scary is probably not the adjective that first comes to your mind when you think of Jesus Christ. And yet, as we look at these verses here, In the Sermon on the Mount, we encounter some of the scariest words that Jesus ever spoke. At the same time, Jesus' words here, in which Zach read for us, are not intended to scare the literal hell out of us, but rather to waken us up to the reality that hell is the eternal destiny of many religious people. Now, Jesus doesn't want us leaving here this morning scared, necessarily. But Jesus does want us to know that a day is coming when each of us will stand before the Lord. And on that day, that judgment day, Jesus tells us here that a a bunch of religious people will hear the most terrifying verdict anyone has ever heard. Now, in order to feel the the full weight of Jesus' words here at the end of his sermon on the mount, I want you to picture yourself standing before the Lord on Judgment Day. Now, we don't have a description of it necessarily in God's Word, but so imagine, if you will, picture yourself standing before the Lord. You're giving an account. It's Judgment Day. And Here's the question I want you to hear in your mind. What will you hear from Jesus? What will you hear when you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day? Because here's the essence of Jesus' point that he is trying to emphasize with his concluding words in the Sermon on the Mount. That many people, will hear the most terrifying, unexpected verdict from Jesus Christ when he says to them, I never knew you, depart from me. 
No doubt these are the most terrifying words anyone can ever hear from Jesus. These words should send shivers down our spine and perhaps even cause our heart to skip a beat. And perhaps most terrifying of all is that these particular words will be totally unexpected to many people. Not just a few, but Jesus emphasizes many. Jesus indicates that many people are going to act surprised, even shocked on that day, because their true hearts will be revealed. These people have spoken the right words. These people have even done religious works in Jesus' name. But Jesus will declare to them on that day, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, this is a a warning from Jesus Christ at the end of the Sermon on the Mount here. And it's not because he doesn't love us. This is a warning from Jesus to us here for the very reason that he does love us. He does care about us. And he wants to grab our attention. In fact, he loves us enough to warn us of self-deception that leads to eternal death. And so in this warning, Jesus is telling us, beware. Beware of your own self-deception that leads to this. Jesus says, not everyone who thinks they are saved are in fact saved and going to heaven. So here's a question perhaps we should even ponder ourselves here this morning. Do you think you're going to heaven when you die? If you do, you're actually in the company of most people here in America. An ABC News poll showed that 89% of Americans believe in heaven and 85% of them think they are going there when they die. But Jesus' words should serve as a wake-up call when he says here in these verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, not just a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so what we see here, what Jesus is revealing to us, what he's giving us a picture of, is that many people are actually living on this earth now. They're walking through life now, and they are religious people, and they are falsely assured that they will enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scary part is, it will come as a complete surprise and utter shock to them to hear that they are false believers in Jesus Christ. We saw last Sunday what Jesus said in talking about uh, false teachers. In fact, we even looked at uh, later on in the book of Matthew what he said in Matthew 24, 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And these are the many that have been led astray. And now here in Matthew 7, Jesus says that many false believers will stand on him before him on judgment day, thinking they are truly saved and on their way to heaven, only to hear this unexpected verdict. And one of the most tragic parts to this scenario is the way that these people take themselves to be genuine believers. 
They clearly expect something here on that day. They expect to enter the kingdom of heaven. But they are shocked to hear they are denied entrance. And the reason that Jesus warns us now is so that we will not experience what they experienced. That we will not be shocked to hear those same words. And so he warns us now before it's too late. Jesus' ultimate concern as he comes to the end of his Sermon on the Mount in these verses here is our response to him. Our response to not only Jesus and his words, but all of totality of it. And so he moves from talking about the false teachers that we looked at last Sunday to now talking about false believers. But please understand, this isn't a warning to those who are obviously wicked. People who totally reject God and live in blatant rebellion against God. No, this is a warning to those who are seemingly righteous. Did you notice in these verses, it's everyone in these particular verses is confessing something. And they're confessing Jesus as Lord, Lord, Lord. And so Jesus is speaking to people who are rather very religious, but utterly deceived. They think they're on the narrow road to heaven, when in reality, they are on the broad road to eternal destruction in hell. Now, this is a terrifying text, then, for the false believer. But for those who are true believers in Jesus Christ, listen, this text brings comfort. God is not fooled. Fakes do not get into the kingdom of heaven. Only true believers in Jesus Christ. But for everyone, this particular text drives us to do something. Jesus is wanting us to test ourselves. He's wanting us to examine our own lives and look at our hearts before a holy God and test ourselves to see, are you sure that you're truly saved and on your way to the kingdom of heaven? In fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So how then do I know I am truly saved and going to heaven? Well, test yourself. And there's three particular tests that Jesus identifies for us here in this particular passage. Notice the first one. Test your confession of Jesus Christ. Test your confession of Jesus Christ. Now, sadly, it is really quite easy today to come across as a Christian without really being a Christian. All you have to do is use the right password, and people will think you are a Christian today. Now, we're familiar with passwords. In fact, in a world of identity theft and cybersecurity, we know all about passwords. We now need a password for every online account that you can imagine. We get irritated when we can't remember the right password and we have to reset our passwords because we have forgotten what those passwords are. In fact, we have so many passwords now that you need a spreadsheet, it seems like, to keep track of all your passwords and accounts. 
And today, just as in Jesus' day, we use a password within the church. Jesus tells us it's the word Lord, which is used four different times in these three verses. And so Jesus is telling us, he's warning us that just because you know the password doesn't mean you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, we can phrase it this one, not everyone who uses the password, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's test our confession of Jesus Christ. Let's test our confession of him as Lord. Notice, first of all, merely saying right words is not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus holds up the example of people who give this spectacular confession as they stand before Jesus, and yet saying the right words is not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. One commentator has noted that this confession is remarkable in at least two ways. One, the confession is polite. They address Jesus as Lord, which was a sign of respect in Jesus' day, much like the use of the term sir or mister that we would use today. Two, this, this confession is not only polite, but it, it's actually orthodox. While the word Lord can mean sir, it is also a divine title for God. And so these people, listen, they had the correct intellectual understanding of who Jesus was. They believed, in other words, the right things about Jesus. But even the demons are orthodox in that they believe the truth of Jesus Christ, according to James 2.19. Now, it is right, it is proper to call Jesus Lord. Words are important. In fact, we got a reminder of that this week just on WH10. WHB, I mean. Uh, That words are important. What you say, you are held accountable to. Words matter. No one is saved without confessing that Jesus is Lord. But what Jesus is reminding us here, the warning here, is that verbal confession is not enough. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, he says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so Jesus makes it clear that all who enter will confess him as Lord, but not all who confess him as Lord will enter heaven. Intellectual understanding does not indicate that you have saving faith in Jesus Christ. You can be absolutely correct in your belief about Jesus and yet not be truly saved or born again. So just because you talk about Jesus, just because you use the right password, just because you talk about the kingdom of heaven and going to heaven doesn't mean you are actually going there. Furthermore, zeal does not bring or guarantee eternal life. Saying the right words with passion, in other words, is not enough. These people not only call Jesus Lord, they call him Lord, Lord. And they say it with passion and with zeal. 
And yet, despite all of their emotion, despite all of their excitement for the Lord, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what we see here is that anyone can identify with the Lord and not be born again. Just as anyone can go out and buy a chief jersey and wear it proudly and wear it passionately without having any affiliation with that team. Merely saying something doesn't make it so. What we say has no real meaning in and of itself. It's how we live that bears testimony that we are a new creation in Christ. In other words, if your life doesn't honor the lordship of Jesus Christ, if your life does not reflect the life of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how much you say, Lord, Lord, or sing, Lord, Lord, or even shout, Lord, Lord. Jesus asked in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So what we see here, what Jesus is warning us about, is that there will be no name dropping at heaven's door. Merely saying the right words is not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Second, we see merely doing religious works is not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. These false Christians will be so shocked and so surprised on judgment day that they will actually challenge Jesus Christ. They will challenge the validity of the Lord's judgment of them on that day. In fact, Jesus says that they will actually stand before him and they will present their own evidence before Jesus of why they should get to enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice what it says in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And what's so interesting about this is that Jesus does not deny what they say. He does not deny any of their claims of doing mighty works in their name, which suggests that they were actually telling the truth. And yet, Jesus says, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is frightening here is what these false believers were able to do in Jesus' name. They were able to prophesy in Jesus' name and perhaps deliver some sort of spiritual message and perhaps even lead others to salvation in Christ while they themselves remained outside of Christ. That's scary. More than that, they were were able to cast out demons They were able to do mighty works in Jesus' name. As a member of Jesus' 12 disciples, we know that even Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, actually had this same power, and yet he was still lost in his sins. So no wonder Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, these false believers didn't realize, they didn't know that good works, even miraculous works, do not impress the Lord. The issue here that Jesus wants to emphasize is not that many people who have prophesied, who have cast out demons, or who have performed mighty works, 
are not on their way to hell or on their way to hell. That's not the issue he's making. Listen, the, what he's emphasizing, what the point is, is that you and I here, we, none of us, we have not done anywhere near those kinds of good works. Mighty works, miraculous works. And yet, if we here, if we are depending on our own good works to get us into heaven, it is certainly not enough. Why? Because my goodness, your goodness, my good works and your good works is not enough to save me or you. Isaiah reminds us of this in 64 verse 6. When the prophet writes, we all have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So what does this mean? It means that a person may may be able to do great things in the name of Jesus and even be able to get great results from it. But that says absolutely nothing about their true identity, about their salvation. These people tried, in other words, to hop onto the road leading to the kingdom of heaven without ever going through the gate of salvation in Jesus Christ. They, they tied the good fruit of apples to their branches without really being an apple tree. This is an important distinction for us to make. Do you look to your religious works as the reason that you will be in heaven? Or do you simply see them as evidence that you genuinely know Jesus and see that as the reason you will be in heaven? You see, this passage here is scary because Jesus wants us to stop And he wants us to evaluate our lives. He wants us to identify the true basis of our salvation. You see, our salvation is not based on what we say about Jesus or what we do for Jesus, but simply on what Jesus says about me and what Jesus has already done for me on the cross and through his resurrection. How do I know I'm truly saved? Listen, you need to test your confession of Jesus Christ. The second test is this. Test your connection with Jesus. Or if you want to write relationship, but it didn't start with a C, so I put connection. Or communion with Jesus. Test your relationship, your communion, your connection with Jesus. So what then is the essential characteristic of the true believer, the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ? Is If it's not saying the right words, and if it's not doing religious works, then what is it? And what we see here in Jesus' words is that the chief characteristic is our relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus knowing you and you knowing Jesus. So the most important question, then, that we we could ask ourselves is this. Do you know Jesus? And does Jesus know you so that you enter the kingdom of heaven? You see, we enter the kingdom of heaven 
through faith in Jesus Christ. Being known by Jesus as one of his sheep and knowing Jesus as our shepherd. In the end, listen to me, it doesn't matter what you say about Jesus. The only thing that matters is what will Jesus say about you. What's interesting here in these words of Jesus is that verse 22 records for us what what these false believers will say to the Lord on the day of judgment. But what we see here now is that in verse 23, it records for us what Jesus will say to these false believers. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. One of the most concise and clearest definitions or descriptions of eternal life, of knowing Jesus and Jesus knowing you, is found in John 17, 3, where Jesus tells us, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, these false believers, they, they had ritual, they had religion, but they did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They knew Jesus' name, but they didn't know Jesus as their Savior and King, as their shepherd. And more importantly, Jesus never knew them. Now, in his deity, we know that Jesus knows all things. Jesus does not lack information about people. He knows every thought and deed about us. And so when Jesus says, I never knew you, he's talking about the intimacy of a personal relationship with him. And so then, I never knew you simply means, I never knew you as my child. I never knew you as one of my sheep who was part of the flock, the eternal family of God. Jesus tells us in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Later on, the same chapter in verses 27, 28, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So again, what will Jesus say to you on Judgment Day? Listen, the most terrifying words that you can ever hear from Jesus is I never knew you. Depart from me. Jesus does not mean to to frighten us necessarily with these words, and yet if it takes being frightened to consider your eternal destiny, then so be it. Jesus wants to awaken us, and especially awaken those who confess Jesus without having a relationship with Jesus, to awaken those who know about Jesus without really knowing him. So before judgment day comes, before it is too late, test your connection with Jesus. Test your relationship with Jesus to make sure that you truly know him. And Jesus gives us a way to do that. He actually tells us how to test our relationship with him in these verses. Notice, number one here, 
We give evidence that we know Jesus by our obedience to Jesus. Look what Jesus says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now the obvious question is, well, what is the Father's will? And first and foremost, it is God's will for you to believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. We read in John 6, 28 through 29, then they asked him, that is, they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who has sent me. Of course, God's will is much more than just believing in Jesus Christ for your salvation. God's will is revealed all throughout the scriptures. And especially in Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. So one way to kind of narrow this down to test yourself is to look below the surface and to see if your life conforms to the character and conduct of the kingdom of heaven in which Jesus describes right here in his Sermon on the Mount. Now, some of you may be thinking, man, Bruce, it sure sounds like you're saying we're saved by works. So, lest you judge me as a false teacher, let me be clear here. Jesus is not teaching that your works save you. Listen, you can never be good enough to please God. I can never be good enough to please God. In fact, according to Romans 3.23, we know that. Paul tells us, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. Now, grace does say, though. Listen, grace does say that we are saved by works. Not just our works, though. But, rather, Jesus' work on the cross. Salvation is trusting in what Christ has done for you, not in doing something for God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, your works, so that no one may boast. And so we are saved by faith, listen to me, in Christ's work, not your own work. And yet the nature of faith is that it reveals itself in what? Works or obedience. John Carson put it this way. It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom of heaven because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom of heaven who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. In other words, faith that doesn't produce obedience is not real faith. You're saved by faith alone, yes. In Christ alone, yes. But faith that saves is never alone. If you truly have faith in Jesus Christ, then that faith will inevitably be demonstrated by living in obedience. And Jesus says only those 
with a faith that obeys will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now again, lest some of you get needlessly fearful here and think that perfect obedience is demanded of us, I would call your attention to just the disciples of Jesus Christ. And we know those disciples certainly did not have perfect obedience. James and John, boy, they got so arrogant that they actually thought they had the right to sit at Jesus' right hand in the kingdom. Thomas, we all know his story. He actually, he doubted the resurrection of Jesus Christ until he saw for himself with his own eyes Jesus. Peter the Rock, well, he on several times acted more like Plato specifically when he denied knowing Jesus three different times. But even though these disciples had their moments of failure, listen, they kept pressing forward. They continued following Jesus, and they sought to live in obedience, even though they stumbled and fell many times. Listen, God knows that we will not obey him perfectly. And that's why John tells us in John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, listen, if we confess our sins, He, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, one way that we test our relationship with Jesus Christ, whether we really know Jesus and whether Jesus really knows us, is We give evidence of that through our obedience. Not perfect obedience, but it is part of our life. It is the characteristic of our life. It is what we are striving towards. Again, not perfectly. But the work of the Holy Spirit is doing a work in us. Now, the opposite is also true. And Jesus makes that very clear here, too. That we actually give evidence that we don't know Jesus... By our disobedience. You see, these false believers declare what they did in Jesus' name. But notice what Jesus declares to them in verse 23. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of what? Lawlessness. You see, the great tragedy here is that these false believers will be exposed on judgment day for who they really are. At which time Jesus will banish them from his presence and then dismiss them as workers of lawlessness. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Jesus doesn't zap people into hell. He refuses them entrance into heaven and then he commands them to spend eternity in hell separated from him. In fact, ever since God banished Adam and Eve from the garden because of their sin, this has been the essential judgment for rebellion against God. Separation from Him. That's what sin does. It separates us from a holy God. That's why we need Jesus Christ. So that we now can be reconciled back to God in a relationship with Him. But on Judgment Day... Jesus will say to these unbelievers, listen, you chose to spend your life without me here on this earth, and now you can have it your way forever. Now, did you also catch what Jesus calls these false believers? He calls them workers of lawlessness. 
That's rather revealing since these people claim to do what? To do just the opposite. They claim to do religious works in Jesus' name. But in reality, they were the direct opposite of righteousness. They were lawless. They refused, in other words, to do the will of the Father in heaven. And Jesus says, such people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's be honest, though. We can't just look at these people as worker of lawlessness because as we look at each other here, that's what we all are. Every one of us sitting here this morning and me standing here, we are all in the same boat. We are all workers of lawlessness. And since that is true, the question is, well, does Jesus send everyone away? Depart from me. I never knew you. And the answer is no. Thank God. Jesus sends away, quote, lawless people who have no interest in repentance of their sin. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.19, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And I just love what the Apostle Paul writes about people who have done just that. People who have turned away from their sin and in repentance then have turned to their only hope in life and that is Jesus Christ for their salvation. Do you realize what Paul says about those people? Oh my gosh, it is beautiful. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous or workers of lawlessness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Paul says, which is what Jesus is telling us here. He is warning us about self-deception. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says this in verse 11, and such were some of you. And then he says of this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. And I hope and pray that is what you claim, that that has been your testimony. How do I know I'm truly saved? Test your confession of Jesus Christ. And test your connection with Jesus Christ. There's one last test that Jesus gives us. It's actually in the verses below this that we did not read, but I want to leave you with it. And that is to test your commitment to Jesus Christ. One of the biggest signs that you may not be a true Christian today is that your commitment to Christ goes up and down like a yo-yo, depending on the circumstances in your life. Hear me out on this. Your spiritual foundation, according to the words of Jesus Christ in this parable, is built on shifting sand rather than the solid rock of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And because you have no firm foundation, your commitment to Christ falters in the storms of life. Look what Jesus writes. Look what he says in verses 24 through 27. Look at it in your Bibles. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, there's your obedience, 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, there's your disobedience, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Life goes wrong. Storms come. And you feel like, God, how could you do this to me? And then you think to yourself, well, God, if you're not going to take better care of me, then why should I live for you? It's like you have this contract with God. I'm going to do certain things, God, and this is what you will do in return for me. You're going to bless me and make my life a little easier. And so when a storm comes, you get mad at God for not keeping up his end of the bargain. And you assume, well, God, what good is it that I'm with you? And then you bell on him. But people who really know Jesus say, hey, in the midst of the storm, even if I lose everything, I still have you, Lord. I'd rather have you than anything And so a true Christian has a foundation that carries him or her through any storm of life. When the storm comes, they don't worry. They don't think to themselves that this storm is a sign of God's anger at me. Why? Because the gospel teaches you that God has already removed all of your sins at the foot of the cross. You are his child, and he is what to you? He's your heavenly father. And so you now remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember specifically what Jesus said about your father who is in heaven in the Sermon on the Mount. That he knows what you need before you ask him in chapter 6, verse 8. And therefore, you what? You trust God. You trust him, and you treasure him instead of worrying about your life. And that leads you in the storms to embrace God's promise in Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, as we conclude, what is absolutely essential for all of us to do here is to take a very serious look at our lives and to ask ourselves, what will you hear? When you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. And so from teenagers, students, all the way to senior adults, I implore you, what will you hear? A day is coming where each individual person will stand before God. And we need to ask ourselves, we need to think about this. Jesus is drawing his conclusion to his sermon. And he is warning us, Stand, picture yourself before me. What will you hear when you stand before me on Judgment Day? Can you imagine what it would be like to hear those terrible, unexpected words from the Lord? I never knew you. Depart from me. The good news, though, the good news of the gospel 
is that you don't have to hear those words. The good news of the gospel is that you can hear the words, welcome home, my child. The good news of Jesus' invitation to the kingdom of heaven is this. If you accept his invitation to enter the narrow gate of salvation, that is to trust him alone, by faith alone, as your Savior and King, listen, you will never hear Jesus say to you, depart from me, because he knows you, and you know him. Listen, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved, is to be a child of God, to be redeemed from your sins through your faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. It is the greatest thing in the world, but the second is to be sure of it, is to be sure that you're on your way to heaven. Jesus wants you to be saved and sure of that very reality. But Jesus also wants to wake up those who are falsely assured that they are on their way to heaven because they are saying the right password of Lord, Lord. And they're doing religious works. They're coming to church. They're singing the songs. They're going through the motions. And Jesus says that is not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will be deceived, thinking they're going to enter when they will be denied. What will you hear when you stand before the Lord? With the heads bowed, and as we come to our response time, again, I ask you, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And more importantly, does Jesus know you? Do you have a relationship with him? And if you do, it will be shown by our obedience to him, not perfectly, but the trajectory of your life is such that you are following Christ and seeking his kingdom. If you're not for sure about your salvation, if you're not for sure about your relationship, then lamp. Do business with God. Cry out to him now during this time to save you. Express to him the desire of your heart to repent of your sin and to be saved from it through your faith in him. Pray right where you're seated. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would enable us to respond in faith to the teaching of your word. We also ask that you would move in the heart of anyone who has never received by faith Jesus as their Savior. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The minister and are going to play through a chorus. As they do, will you receive?